what I want to talk with you about today is what Doug announced is called recapitulation. It's something that we've been talking about in our Sun Valley Bible study, where I've been um, a shepherd there for about a year or so. And we have talked about recapitulation in our study there. And it's a very biblical topic, but it may be one that you've never heard of before. I mean, you're probably even wondering, how do you spell that? How do you spell recapitulation? Okay, it's a big word, but it has a very simple meaning. Okay, this isn't going to be hard to figure out. All right, you ready? This is what recapitulation means. Okay, you've hopefully figured out how to spell it. I'm not going to spell it for you. You can figure it out. Look it up online. Recapitulation means this. Biblical events repeat themselves. That's it. Biblical events repeat themselves. And I pondered for a while whether I should actually teach this to you today um, because it's such a complicated word and it's like, why would you preach on recapitulation? Is that even a biblical concept? But knowing how well taught you are and how hungry many of you are for the, the truth, I figured this would be a good one for you today. And honestly, I can hardly find a more amazing, kind of mind-blowing concept to discuss with you, except for this concept of recapitulation. And now, this sermon may feel a little different than what you're used to, but so is the topic, so I feel a little justified in my approach today. Um, So bear with me as we go through this here, but I think this is actually going to divide down into something very simple for you, three three simple examples that I want to give you. Um, Now, I've defined for you what recapitulation is. Biblical events repeat themselves. Yes, biblical events repeat themselves. And now for the rest of the time today, let me give you three primary examples. That's not all of them by any means, but three primary examples of recapitulation in Scripture. And I've titled them just three different very simple points. The first one I've called the 40s. You'll figure out what that means in a second. The 40s. The second one I've called the second ruler. And the third one, I'm calling it the boat and the storm. The boat and the storm. So we have the 40s, the second ruler, and the boat and the storm. And we will spend the majority of our time on the first one, the 40s. So if we're running behind with like 10 minutes left and you're like, oh my goodness, he's not at point number two yet. That was designed, okay? So you don't have to worry about that. Don't worry, you will get lunch. You will be able to go to In-N-Out. So don't panic. The first one's going to act as kind of a preliminary foundation to help you understand the concept of recapitulation. We have to go into much depth to understand recapitulation from the first example. Once you get the first one, the other ones will make a lot of sense and go very quick. I think it'll be pretty clear. So because we have much to cover, let's dive right in. You ready to go? The 40s. Let's talk about the 40s. And I'm not referring to the significant decade in American history, the 40s, okay? (laughs) I'm talking about the number 40 as it occurs in Scripture. The number 40 that occurs in Scripture. And what I want to start with is Jesus and his 40, okay? Jesus and his 40. In Matthew chapter 4, go ahead and turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 4. Turn over there with me. By the way, this will have some Christmas implications today, so this works out very well. I've been wanting to preach this for a while, so it just happened to land on on Christmas, so that's that's a divine thing. Um, 
Matthew chapter 4, you will remember this well. Many of you will remember this well. We learn that Jesus was driven into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Good, you guys are already on it. We could just pray now, I guess. No. All right, 40 days and 40 nights. And immediately, we probably don't always do this, but we should probably ask ourselves, why? Why 40 days and why 40 nights? Oh, because that's how long it takes to go really hungry. No, that's not why. I mean, yes, kind of, but no, not really. Okay. Is there significance to this 40 days and 40 nights? But maybe you're thinking like, well, what if that's just random? I mean, like, what if it's just a fact in Scripture? Are we making too much out of just a number, like 40? I mean, certainly we deal with random numbers every day. Not everything has supernatural significance that we come across, of course, right? I mean, you might see like 666 on the license plate in front of you, but that doesn't mean that Satan is driving the vehicle, right? Your health insurance account might have seven sevens in it, but that doesn't mean you're immune from COVID because of that or, be, or any other disease for that matter, right? But even though we deal with random numbers that occur every day in our lives, when a biblical writer informs us something very specific like that about a number, we must pay really close attention because nothing like that is incidental in Scripture. Nothing like that is incidental. He's not going to just mention 40 days and 40 nights for no reason. Everything that we see written in Scripture has a direct connection to a theological point that the author is making. Nothing is there to simply entertain you with trivia or to make you kind of, you know, buff on knowledge or something. All of it matters and all of it is connected. So when you see numbers in the Bible, you need to ask, why? Like the number 40 that we see in this text. Why? But we need to be careful that we don't take this as an opportunity to go off on kind of a wild goose chase to kind of prove anything and everything with a number like 40, okay? This could get, this could get dangerous if you don't set some parameters. It can't be simply a way for you to prove conveniently your personalized interpretation of what you think 40 is well, 40 sounds like this, and it makes sense to me because it applies to me so well, so that's what 40 is there for. No, you can't do that. That's where dangerous ideologies like numerology and seeing signs behind every corner, they go completely awry. You have no boundaries at that point because your interpretation always caters to self, right? There's no boundaries anymore. You can kind of prove whatever you want. And that's not what we're going to do here at all. And I hope you're going to be able to see that very clearly. <clears throat> when the author of Scripture, Matthew or whoever it is, when the author, uh, or excuse me, I should say, when the reader, so when the reader of Matthew, when he seeks his personalized message in Scripture, he's looking at that, it, kind of bring his own interpretation into the passage. His self-ambition always clouds God's intended meaning, Okay. When the reader, let me say it again, when the reader, you, it could be you, but hopefully it's not you, right? When you're seeking your own personalized message in Scripture, your self-ambition is going to cloud your ability to see the true meaning of the text. It's always going to be the case. But a proper interpretation of something like Jesus' 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness always considers the text above the reader and makes 
legitimate textual connections that were intended to be made by the author. Hopefully that makes sense. You in your modern situation, I'm sorry, are secondary to the meaning of the text. You in your situation must submit to the meaning of the text no matter how disconnected that may seem to be from your situation. You have to submit to the text first. Then you can apply in your situation if it applies. The goal is not to find a meaning that sounds reasonable to you. The goal is to find the author's meaning, especially as it fits within all the other related passages of Scripture in the divine tapestry of progressive revelation. Okay? The goal is to find the author's meaning as it's fitting within the other related passages of Scripture in the tapestry of progressive revelation. That's just a caution for you as we get going, to set some boundaries and parameters so you don't go like and take this somewhere out in left field. So let's talk about Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights. Many of you will remember and observe probably right away that the number 40 actually occurs quite a few times in Scripture at some very important points. You might remember that. And what we find is that 40 days and 40 nights are actually not even unique to Jesus. Like literally 40 days and 40 nights. That's not unique to Jesus. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, look at Exodus chapter 24 and verse 18 and Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28, both of those passages talk about Moses who went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. He did. Twice. He did it on two separate occasions. In both of those situations, he received the law from God. He received the law on the, uh, the Ten Commandments on, on two tablets of stone. And remember, he broke the, the first two uh, tablets of stone, right, at the golden calf incident. So he went up again and did another 40 days and 40 nights, the same thing. Also, we know this. According to Stephen's testimony about Moses, in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, he shepherded, this would be Moses, Moses shepherded sheep in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. That's not a coincidental detail. That's not a coincidental detail. And many of us will also remember that Israel was in the wilderness, just like Moses was. For 40 years. These historical moments that center around 40 are connected. They are all connected. It's more than just a shot in the dark kind of connection that we're talking about here, where all of them just happen to mention 40, so that's, oh, that's kind of cool. Moses' 40 days and 40 nights twice on Mount Sinai are marked by not eating anything and not even drinking anything. And of course, that's miraculous, right? I mean, he should have died after like a maximum of like six days, right? After not drinking water. That's miraculous. But think about that. He didn't eat anything. He didn't drink anything for 40 days and 40 nights. That should sound really familiar, right? That's Jesus in the wilderness, isn't it? He did not eat anything for 40 days and 40 nights, right? That's not a coincidence. 
That's not a coincidence. Even so, all four examples that we've talked about, Jesus, Israel, Moses on Sinai twice, and 40 years in Midian, they're all set in the same kind of region, the wilderness. They're all set in the wilderness. And that's significant because the wilderness throughout Scripture and in these examples acts as a time of testing, right? Wilderness always tests you. So it's no wonder then that Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, look down at your page, you should be there, right? Then Jesus was led away or led up into the wilderness to be tempted or led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, to be tempted, to be tested. See hear that? That's important because he needs to go into the wilderness to be tested. So whether it was Jesus or Moses or Israel, all of them were tested in these 40 days, 40 nights, or 40 years. God tested them in the wilderness. And the connection makes sense because often in, uh, in Scripture, a leader walks through what his people must walk through. He must experience what his people will experience or what they did experience. The leader must represent the people that way. Moses had to walk where Israel would walk. He had to do this before Israel even did it. 40 years in Midian for Moses, then 40 years in the wilderness for Israel. You see that? See how Moses' example came before even Israel went 40 years. For Moses, it's 80 years. But it shows Moses then was fit to lead them, right? He went 40 years in the wilderness, was tested, and now he's a fit leader to lead them. It's no wonder then that Jesus had to walk this road too, right? It's no wonder he had to do that. So then he proves when he has his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, he proves that he is the ultimate one that is fit to lead us. And in Jesus's life, the connections go even deeper than that. And I want to show you that. So Matthew, before he expounds on Jesus's wilderness wanderings, he already went out of his way to connect Jesus with both Israel and Moses. I want to show you this. And you may have seen some of these connections before, but I just want to piece it all together in one sermon so you can kind of really appreciate this. This is really cool. Go back to Matthew chapter two. This is what we read in the scripture reading. This is my brother read um, in the scripture reading here a little bit earlier. Look at Matthew chapter two. Look at verse 13. Let's look at starting from there. Remember this talking about the Magi. The Magi departed, right? It says after they departed, behold, look, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph by way of dream, saying, Rise up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I should speak with you, for Herod is about to seek the child so as to kill him or destroy him. Verse 14, Now rising up, he took the child and his mother by night, and he departed for Egypt And he was there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. I'm looking at these three verses here, verse 13, 14, and 15. We see, obviously, Joseph taking Jesus away down into Egypt. 
And then he has this quote from Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. In Matthew 2 here, Matthew proves that Jesus went down to Egypt as a baby, and the question is, why is that important? Because Jesus, and here's the, here's the answer, because Jesus had to journey where Israel journeyed. Okay, think about that. Jesus had to journey where Israel journeyed. Did Israel go down to Egypt? She'd be like, yes, 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 I did. I mean, even Matthew's quote of Hosea 11.1 1, at the end of verse 15 there was originally written not for Jesus. It was written for Israel. So how does Jesus fulfill Hosea 11.1 1 if Hosea 11.1 1 is about Israel? Matthew's got really bad hermeneutics. He needs to figure out how to do Bible interpretation. No, it's because he understands that Jesus is the true Israel. He is Israel as they should have been. He is representing Israel in the fullest and complete sense. He's walking where they walked. He's experiencing what they experienced. Israel, corporately speaking, right, back in the Old Testament, we've read this before, They had to leave the land of promise in Jacob's lifetime and dwell in Egypt for over 400 years. You might remember that, going back into Genesis. So in that same way, Jesus had to go to Egypt, and then he had to come out of Egypt. You have to be in Egypt to be able to come out of Egypt. You have to, and that's the whole point. That's why the quote says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Not I, you know, into Egypt, I went, and I called my son there. No, It's that out of Egypt, I called my son. The point is that Jesus had to go into Egypt so that he could come out of Egypt just like Israel had to come out of Egypt, right? He did this because he was representing them. It shouldn't be surprising then that in the next verse, in verse 16, we see that Herod tries to kill all of the baby boys in his hot pursuit of Jesus. He thinks he's doing something clever and perhaps something really unique. He hasn't. He's not doing anything unique. That should sound super familiar to those of us who have read Exodus chapter 1, right? Because who else tried to kill all of the baby boys? Pharaoh in Egypt. There we see recapitulation. History repeating itself. See that? That's what Jesus' life are telling us then, that he is also like Moses, isn't he? Not just like Israel. He's actually even like Moses. Israel in Egypt, then Jesus in Egypt, Pharaoh and the baby boys, then Herod and the baby boys. Recapitulation. History repeating itself. God orchestrating history to repeat itself. To teach us something. And you might be wondering, what? is that going to teach us, though? What is that? Because that sounds really cool that God would orchestrate that, but what is that teaching us? Well, let's continue, and you will see, okay? So when you get to Matthew chapter 3, so let's turn, you might have to turn a page or so in your Bible. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew's building a case of all of this recapitulation everywhere, okay? (laughs) It's really cool. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee to the Jordan, arrived to John to be baptized by him. 
And John was trying to prevent him, saying, um, I have need to be baptized by you, <laughs> and you are coming to me to be baptized? And Jesus answered and said something very interesting. He says, permit it right now, okay, permit it this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness. Think about that in terms of recapitulation, okay? Just, I'm not going to go into too much depth there. We don't have time. Just think about that in terms of recapitulation. Then, says John permitted him. So then Jesus, after being baptized, immediately he came out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and coming upon him, and behold, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the point is, is that when you get to Matthew chapter 3 here, when you get to Jesus' baptism, right before Jesus enters into the, into the wilderness, he has to be baptized. It's essential. And you're like, why is that essential right now? Why is that essential? And it's essential because just as Israel, and pay attention to this, okay? Carefully. Just as Israel left Egypt, right? And then right after that, they crossed through on dry land through the Red Sea, right? The Sea of Reeds to enter into the wilderness right after that, right? So Jesus left Egypt in Matthew 2 so as to pass through waters in Matthew 3 so as to enter the wilderness in Matthew 4. You see that? Recapitulation, recapitulation, recapitulation. See that? Now, what's interesting is the fact that Jesus actually went into the water and didn't pass through dry land, but passed through the water, whereas Israel didn't even touch the water, right? That's an important distinction. Because why? Because if they had touched the water, literally, right, if they had to swim through the Red Sea, they would have drowned, right? They would have drowned. Water in the Bible is often a sign of judgment, like the flood, the Red Sea, right? They should have had to pass technically into the water, right? If it were not for God, if it were not for Yahweh. But Jesus' baptism communicates this. This is so cool. I'm going into the water and drowning where you should have drowned. I'm doing what you couldn't have done. I'm not just representing you by showing you a story of doing something very similar, which it is passing through water, so to speak. Very similar. But I'm doing more than that. I'm passing into the water because I'm going where you couldn't have gone. Amazing. Even the fact that the Spirit actually comes upon Jesus, right? Chapter 4, verse 1, there in your text. The Spirit comes upon Jesus, or I should say actually at the baptism itself, comes upon Jesus right there at the baptism, and then the Spirit leads him away into the wilderness, in chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit comes upon him and sends him into the wilderness. That mirrors what happened when the Spirit came upon Israel right after they walked through the Red Sea to lead them through the wilderness. And there's another connection after Matthew, or after Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Just another page or so over. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus gets up on a mountain and he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Makes sense. He's on a mountain, right? Sermon on the Mount. 
and Jesus saturates the first part of his sermon explaining the true intent behind the law. He talks a lot about the law at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount sermon. You've heard that it was said, right? And he quotes a Ten Commandment or, or, or something like that. But I say to you, right? And then he explains it. Or not one jot or tittle shall pass away from the law, right? You remember that? that line there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Or how about this one? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. By talking so much about the law at the beginning of his sermon, Jesus is living out, this is so interesting, he's living out the next stage of Israel's history when they came or when they come to Sinai to receive the law. So we're going from wilderness, and now Jesus gets up on a mountain to deliver a sermon starting with the law and its true meaning, which parallels exactly what happened to Israel when they traveled through the wilderness just to land at a mountain to hear from God about the law. And this is really Incredible, because Jesus is basically saying, just as Yahweh gave Israel the law, so I am giving you the law and its full meaning. I am Yahweh, who delivers the true intent of the law to you. That's basically what it's saying. And at the beginning of his sermon, Matthew 5, 1, you see there, it says, now seeing the crowds... Jesus went up onto the mountain and sitting down, this is what scribes would do in the synagogues. They would sit down, okay? They would sit down and they would open up a scroll. They would begin to read. The wording here is very particular. He sits down and instead of opening up a scroll, it says what? He opens up his mouth. Notice Jesus didn't open the Torah. He didn't open a scroll. He doesn't open the law. He opened his mouth. And he's saying, I have my own authority to deliver the law because I am the authority. I am the authority. I am Yahweh. If that's not one of the greatest evidences for the deity of Christ without even saying it. I'll show you another one later. It's really cool, okay? That's why everyone was actually shocked at the end of his sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, right? The end of his sermon. You know, sometimes it's like, well, it's such a wonderful sermon, so everyone's like shocked. Oh, what a beautiful sermon. No, that's not why they're shocked. They're shocked because it says, when he finished these words, they were amazed, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not like their scribes to open scrolls, to read, well, this is what the scroll says, so we got to obey that. No, Jesus says, no, this is because I told you so. Because I told you so. It's like, you know, mom saying to her kid, because I told you so, because I'm mom, right? I'm the authority. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the authority because I told you so. The point is that he had authority to deliver the law from himself. He was not like their scribes who depended upon previous scribes or previous material to teach the people. And so they're all shocked. It's like, he's teaching us like he's the authority. He's teaching us like he is God. 
So putting this all together, it should be clear from Jesus's departure to Egypt, we saw that in Matthew 2, to his baptism in water in Matthew 3, to his mountain sermon on the law in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus's wilderness wanderings right in between there, right? In Matthew chapter 4, that is intentionally tied to Israel's 40 years of wandering. I hope it's clear. I hope you can see it. It's chronological. It all fits perfectly. And then, of course, Israel's 40 years of wandering are tied to their leader, Moses, who was also exiled from Egypt and Midian for 40 years, who received the law on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. They're all connected. Okay? This is recapitulation. History repeated itself in each of these situations to point back to the previous event that had just happened subsequently or previously. So, we've looked at the evidence for connecting Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights to Moses in Israel, and we could talk in more detail about how in each of his three tests, right, the wilderness tests that he has in Matthew 4, that Jesus responds uncoincidentally with quotes from Deuteronomy, okay? That's not a coincidence that every single time he quotes scripture to Satan, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Since Deuteronomy basically is what Israel should have said in the wilderness, but they didn't, or should have done in the wilderness, but they didn't. Remember, Deuteronomy was written at the end of the wilderness wanderings after the first generation had died. And we could talk in more detail about how the three tests that he undergoes mirror Israel's wilderness wanderings, like, right, water from rock, right? Israel experienced that. And then bread from heaven, Israel experienced that. And then Jesus turning rocks into bread, kind of merging those two stories together. And then God, how it talks about in Deuteronomy, how God carried Israel through the wilderness so that they would not fall from his hands and break a bone. And then Jesus is then tempted by Satan to jump from literally God's hands from the temple to not break a bone. See the parallel there, right? And then God showing Moses all the promised land, right? At the end of Deuteronomy, up on Mount Nebo or Mount Pisgah, and he shows them all the promised land, says you can't enter there. And then Satan showing Jesus all the nations of the world and saying, bow down to me and worship me. All of these have a parallel to Israel's life. But that's the super long version of the sermon, and we can't go into that. So we don't have time. Sorry. But what we do need to talk about for sure are some implications, okay? Some implications before we get to point number two. So what do we do with all that has been said so far? And what do we get out of this? What do we get out of this? A few things. First, although Jesus gives us an excellent example of battling temptation, that is really true, right? A perfect example of battling temptation. That's not the main point of Matthew chapter 4 and his testing. That's not the main point. It's not bad that you're pulling that away from the text just realize you're not getting the primary application that Matthew wanted you to get. Make sure if you're going to get that application that you at least understand what the primary application is and apply that first and then apply 
the secondary application of what of his perfect example of being tested. Instead, what we see is that the context of Matthew's gospel, we saw this, has been building this accelerating theme that Jesus is Israel's true representative and is succeeding where they failed. He is succeeding where they failed. We need to know that because he also is our representative, not just Israel's representative. This is a passage that first and foremost should increase your faith in his ability to be what you couldn't be and to do what you couldn't do. That's what this is about. More than that, it should encourage you that God is committed to redeeming you and it required Jesus walking where his people walked and doing not only what they did, but doing what they couldn't do. Also, it shows us that connecting one passage to another in Scripture should not be done carelessly, arbitrarily, or at the whim of the reader. You can't just do this carelessly or arbitrarily or whatever your whim is. Your goal as the reader must be to identify if God actually intended these two events in Scripture to be divinely connected to each other. You got to determine whether that's really true or not. And to do that, you must make good and proper biblical connections. And you're probably wondering, like, what are good connections? How How do we actually determine that? Well, I think one of the best ways to figure that out is to find and locate unique words and terms or perhaps numerous phrases and names that occur in these passages that are connecting to each other from one passage to another so that they actually match and they correlate and therefore they reinforce these connections between them and they make the union undeniably clear, okay? Unique words and terms that are almost like they're unique to those passages that bring them together, or perhaps there are so many, so many terms that are actually in these passages that actually bring these passages together. This matching of terms forces us to stay factually driven and biblically centered and keeps us from foisting our meaning onto the text rather than actually driving God's Uh, rather than actually deriving God's meaning from the text. So in other words, we need to be careful that we do not foist our interpretation onto the text thinking, oh, we've made a good connection here, but we're not actually going into the text and showing this is what the text is actually showing us to make those connections true. And make sure to get the order right too. This is really important, okay? Make sure to get the story order right. For instance, the meaning of Moses' 40 days and 40 nights on Sinai, okay? You go to Moses' 40 days and 40 nights on Sinai. It's not simply that it, this is like a foreshadow of Jesus, and so this is really what the meaning of Exodus is all about. Okay, Moses went on up on Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, so that means that this is foreshadowing Jesus, and so that's really what the meaning of this text is. No, that's actually looking at it backwards. That's looking at it backwards. The original readers of Exodus. We're not thinking, hey, this is Jesus, right? He's going to be 40 days and 40 nights someday. That's great. No, you're missing the point of Exodus if you look at it that way. 
No, you need to go to the later event and then look back to the former event. Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights shows that he is a better Moses and a better Israel. We need to go to Jesus' passage and then look backwards and say, hey, that looks like Moses. Hey, that looks like Israel. He is actually doing a better job than Moses and Israel. That's the point of Jesus' story. That's what we need to pick up. When people read Jesus' story, they would immediately pick up on that because they would have remembered Exodus. They would have known about Moses and they would have known about Israel. They would have heard, hey, that 40 days, 40 nights, that sounds familiar. Hey, wasn't Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights? Yes, you made the connection. Perfect. Wasn't Israel in the wilderness for 40 years? Yes, good. You're making some connections. We must make sure that Jesus doesn't become a pious excuse to incorporate him into seemingly any boring text or irrelevant Old Testament passages just to make those passages more interesting and applicable to ourselves. It's really easy to do that, to take Jesus and start incorporating him. Well, I don't really understand what this means, and it's kind of boring. It doesn't really apply. So, you know, it kind of relates to Jesus. So then that's what this passage really means. That's a me-centered Bible study. That's me-centered hermeneutics, me-centered Bible interpretation. We must be really careful that we don't do that, okay? So that's the 40s. That's the 40s. And hopefully it's been an instructive kind of intro into what recapitulation is all about. You're like, oh, finally he made it to point number two. (laughs) All right, the 40s. Second point is the second ruler. The second ruler. Now, these should go much quicker because now you understand the concept of recapitulation and events repeating themselves and how we're connecting these things together. So, second ruler. If you take a me-centered approach to the Bible and read Jesus into every event like we were just talking about, you may miss the beauty of other recapitulations that are happening in Scripture that are actually not really related to Jesus. It's really interesting. You actually miss these. And there's probably no greater example of that than perhaps Joseph and Daniel. Joseph and Daniel. The parallels between these two individuals and their stories are certainly not a coincidence. I mean, I want you to think about it. Egypt in Joseph's day is perhaps the most powerful nation of his time. And then Babylon in Daniel's day is the most powerful nation of his time, right? Joseph then is elevated to second ruler under Pharaoh. So is Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar, right? Even a character appears in both stories that assists the two guys. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Potiphar is called the chief executioner for Egypt. And he takes a liking to Joseph, actually. And I know it's like, well, it's kind of weird because this is the Potiphar's wife thing. But no, there's actually some indication in the text. He actually takes quite a liking to Joseph. Then there's a guy in Daniel's story named Ariok, and he is also called the chief executioner for Babylon. And he takes a liking to Daniel. Both of these men interpret dreams to the king, which doesn't happen a lot in the Old Testament, interpreting dreams to secular kings. Both kings are unusually pleased with Joseph and Daniel. Both are given much gold and possessions and power. 
Both are said to have the spirit of God upon them, which actually is not as common of an attribute of Old Testament people as you might think it is. When they actually explicitly say that the spirit of God actually came upon each individual. So when you read Daniel's story, which is the second story that happens later, right? You need to think this story pictures a story of Joseph for a special reason. And we'll talk about that in a second, right? Look at Daniel's story. This is picturing Joseph's story for a very special reason. But this is what's really cool. Recapitulation, right, can happen in multiple waves. It's not just like one and two. There could also even be a third event that would mirror even those. And there actually is an event that mirrors both of these guys. It's not as clear, but it's really important. And it's John the Baptist, of all things. Kind of unexpected. It's like, where are you getting that from? Maybe this is one of your left field things. But think about this. Okay, just as Joseph and Daniel were second to the king, okay, so John the Baptist acts as second to the Messiah, who is really the true king of Israel and the world, right? I'm like, okay, that's kind of a tenuous connection. Interesting. All right, but think about this. Remember Herod's birthday with John the Baptist? Herod's birthday. Why does it mention Herod's birthday? Like, why does that have to even be mentioned in the text? It's a random fact, right? Where he beheads John in that story, Matthew 14, verses 1 through 11. Now think about this. When else does a king, I know Herod's not really a king, but he kind of is, right? When else does a king have a birthday in Scripture? Pharaoh. And it's when he beheads the baker, right? I mean, you're starting to see the connections. Like, oh my goodness, he's, Herod beheads John and Pharaoh beheads the baker, saves the cupbearer. This is in Genesis chapter 40. And then, of course, that's what prompts Joseph's dream-telling incident to Pharaoh, right? So Herod has a birthday, and he's compared with Pharaoh because he's beheading someone on his birthday. (laughs) It's interesting. These stories are repeating themselves. But here's the thing. Herod is beheading the wrong guy in his story. Whereas Pharaoh, I guess you could say, maybe beheads the right guy. I don't know. Herod doesn't behead his baker or his cupbearer. He beheads the forerunner to the Messiah. He beheads his Daniel. He beheads his Joseph. See that? Even the executioner of John is actually mentioned in the story. There's another connection between the stories. The executioner is there in the story. But... The executioner does not take a liking to John and does not help him escape this fate like they did with Joseph and with Daniel. In other words, John the Baptist's beheading is a recapitulation of Joseph's event and Daniel's event, but it's gone completely wrong. That's what's going on. It's a recapitulation of those events, but it's gone completely wrong. And here's the message then that we're getting from the story here of John the Baptist being beheaded. It's this, Israel's king, Herod, King Herod, is worse than Egypt's and Babylon's kings. Wow, that's, a, that's bad, because that's Israel's king, so to speak. He's worse 
than Egypt's and Babylon's kings because he's beheading the wrong guy. So therefore, the true king of Israel, Jesus, must instead suffer and die, and his glory will have to be delayed for another time. This is a a passage that is pointing to the delay of the Messiah. Why? Because Israel's not ready. They're not ready for him. Because their king is executing his forerunner. But let's think about Daniel's event. When we look at Daniel's event, what message do we get out of Daniel's event specifically as we look back to Joseph's event? Well, it's a lot better, right? It's a lot better than Joseph's, or a lot better than John's beheading, that's for sure. It pictures that Daniel is a new Joseph. He is a new Joseph, and that Israel can trust God in Babylonian exile because God specifically elevated Daniel to second in command just as he elevated Joseph, just as he elevated Joseph. That's amazing. The God who was with Israel in Egyptian exile is with Israel in Babylonian exile. It's beautiful that God would even orchestrate history to align Joseph and Daniel's stories so specifically in so many details just so that he can encourage his people to look back and remember that he was faithful and therefore he will be faithful. He was faithful to Israel in Egypt and he will be faithful to Israel in Babylon. That's the message of Daniel's story, okay? And that is the second ruler example, okay? You ready for one more? Like, yes, we've got five minutes, okay. Yep, okay, good. The boat and the storm, the boat and the storm. This is maybe one of my favorites, okay? The boat and the storm. And again, this one will be quick. This is about the time when Jesus fell asleep in the boat in the middle of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. You might remember this. This is in Mark chapter 4, verses 36 to 41. And of course, other corresponding gospel accounts pick up on this as well. Now, of course, we know this. Jesus was definitely very tired in this event, right? We know that. This is why he's falling asleep in the middle of the storm on a boat. And often you will hear comments like, wow, how could someone fall asleep in a storm? That shows how exhausted he was in ministry. And we should burn ourselves out in ministry for for the Lord and be like Jesus, right? But that's not why it's being mentioned here. Because there were many times that Jesus was exhausted, right? And he probably fell asleep from exhaustion. But why mention it now? Rather, there are so many details informing us that this event is picturing another event when a man fell asleep in a boat, right? And it's Jonah. Good. Oh, you guys are good. (laughs) Jonah fell asleep in his boat. But now you're like, wait a minute, hold on. We're comparing unrighteous Jonah with righteous Jesus. How can we compare the two? Why are these stories even be aligned with one another? But see, here's the point. Jonah fell asleep in a storm. Why? Because he was so content living outside of God's will, right? Like running away from God He is so content, he can actually fall asleep in a storm. That's where he's most content, right? That's amazing. 
He would rather die than fulfill the will of God in that situation. But think about this. Jesus falls asleep in his storm because he's so content in the will of God. Wow. Jesus is a way better Jonah. That's the point. Jonah was running away from ministering to the Gentiles, right? Repentance for the Ninevites. Jesus in his story is actually running to the Gentiles because he's going across the Sea of Galilee to the Gerasenes, which is Gentile territory. Is that a coincidence? No, because he's actually doing what Jonah should have done. See that? In Jonah's event, God is the one that whips up the storm, and then God is the one that stops the storm once Jonah's in the fish, of course, right? In Jesus' story, Jesus stops the storm without a prayer to God. So the question you, the reader, should then ask from the story when you connect it to Jonah's story is, who is God in Jesus' story? From jo- now, compare it to Jonah's story, and the question is, who is God? It should be obvious, right? Clearly, Jesus is making a statement, I am Yahweh. Another indication of his divinity without even explicitly saying it. Use that with the next Jehovah's Witness that you evangelize, okay? They won't know what to do with that, because they always go to John 1.1 and then show you that the Greek is this and that. There is hardly a more definitive picture of Jesus' divinity in Scripture than this moment because it mirrors perfectly with Jonah's story. Perfectly. And it's even the question that the disciples ask as the punchline to the event. Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Certainly they would be thinking, when does God stop storms in the Old Testament? Jonah. They're starting to put themselves in the situation and realize, who's this? Who's this that can stop storms? They know the Jonah story. They realize he's picturing Jonah when he falls asleep in the stern of the boat. No prayer to God. He just stops the storm. He's definitely Yahweh. That's the point. And in Jonah's story, the Gentiles on the boat actually believe in Yahweh as God. And then in Jesus' story, the disciples are beginning to believe in Jesus as God. You can see the parallels there, which is showing that their faith is about as young and immature as those Gentiles, the seafaring Gentiles. Amazing, isn't it? Wow. Exalting God, but man is shown to be what he truly is. This is what recapitulation is all about. I want you to pay attention to this line here because... I think this kind of hopefully brings it all together. This is what recapitulation is all about. Often they are twin stories, sometimes triplets, sometimes four, five stories, intentionally tied together in the tapestry of the Bible where a human author communicates multiple connecting features to a previous story or previous stories, but really, ultimately, they are historical events orchestrated by God that repeat themselves, okay? That was a lot. Let me say that again, okay? These are often two stories, three stories, four stories, something like that, but most often usually two stories, intentionally tied together in the fabric of the Bible, okay? Where a human author is communicating multiple connecting features so that you would be able to connect the dots to a previous story or maybe previous stories, but really, ultimately, they're not just stories. They, this is actually historical events 
orchestrated by God that are repeating themselves. Amazing, isn't it? In the spirit of uh, Hebrews 11, time will fail me to describe of such recapitulations as this. All right, think about this. Noah's ark in the flood and Moses' ark basket in the Nile River. There's a reason why I said ark basket, because that's what it actually says in the text. He's in an ark. Jesus at the well, Moses at the well, Jacob at the well, and there are all women present in each of those situations. Moses in the burning bush and Joshua in the commander of the Lord, and both are told to take off your sandals because it is holy ground. Recapitulation. Battle of Ai in Joshua 8 and the battle of the Amalekites in Exodus 17. Jesus three days in the tomb and Jonah three days in the fish, right? Jesus the vine in John 15 and Israel the vine in Isaiah 5. The miraculous languages of the early church and the languages of Assyria and Babylon and Israel's exile. You're like, no way. Yeah, it's true. The miraculous languages of the early church and the languages of Assyria and Babylon and Israel's exile. Very interesting. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The daughters of Lot and the uh, daughters-in-law of Naomi. We were talking about this in Ruth. Related both by ancestry and whose husbands were all killed. It's a very important connection there. Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist the prophet, the two witnesses of Revelation, and Moses and Elijah on the Mount Transfiguration. And in the spirit of Christmas, which we are just upon here, we have the birth of Jesus, the birth of Samson, the birth of Samuel, all connected. Hannah's prayer and Mary's Magnificat, recapitulation. Ooh, like, whoa, that's cool. And David, oh, this is good, a shepherd. Born in what town? Bethlehem. And Jesus, born in Bethlehem, surrounded by shepherds. Now you know why shepherds had to be there, right? Because it's pointing that the true David has finally arrived. And on and on and on we could go. That's just the ones I could come up with on top of my head. There's plenty of recapitulation in Scripture going on. Recapitulation saturates the Bible. It's God's signature at the end of every piece of art that he does. It's his way of saying, only I could have done this. And so now you've got to come away and think, we're over time. <laughs> what should I gain from this? What should I gain from this? The, the moments we have left here. First, I hope you come away with this. Confidence and strengthen faith in the fact that the Bible is history. It is real. It's real. Second, God is in perfect control of that history, isn't he? Even down to the smallest little details so that things can repeat themselves with such precision. So then when you doubt, is he in control of your life? You have reason not to doubt. You have reason to be completely confident he's in control. Third, God orchestrates biblical history so that it reaches its zenith, its pinnacle, its highest point in the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Recapitulation reaches its climactic point then. More on that in a second. Fourth, the God who was faithful previously is faithful today. That's what you get out of these stories, right? The God who was faithful previously is faithful today. Fifth, and finally, Consider the deeds of those who are in those previous events and learn how to live rightly in today's event. Learn how to live rightly in today's event. But one final question you might ask from this. You might be wondering, can 
modern day events be treated as recapitulation? Can we interpret modern events as recapitulation of biblical events? Can World War II, you know, be a recapitulation of the exile of in Babylon or something like that? No, you can't do that. Why? Because, for starters, you would need biblical revelation, right, to determine if the event you're actually seeing is meant to be seen as recapitulation. You would need biblical revelation for that. And we don't have biblical revelation that would help make those connections for us, right? But let's take that aside for a second and give it the benefit of the doubt. Besides that, there's a much more important thing. Now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has come, all repeating of events have reached their zenith. They've reached their pinnacle in his life and in the events that surround his life, they've reached their peak. No event in our era will be able to repeat in the way of biblical recapitulation because Jesus' first coming brought recapitulation to its zenith point. He brought it to its zenith. That, that would be such a downer to have a recapitulation event in the modern era because he's already reached the peak. That's how God designed it, so that his son would be the grand finale of recapitulation. Cool, huh? The only time in which events will repeat themselves yet again is when Jesus returns. Oh, recapitulation. And he outdoes his first coming with his second coming. Whoa. Only Jesus can out-recapitulate himself. I don't know if that, those words have ever been said like that in that order before, okay? Only Jesus can out-recapitulate himself, and he will do so in the seven-year tribulation and the day of the Lord and in the coming kingdom, but that's a story for another time, okay? Let's pray. Father, we love your word, and we love how your word connects things together. It is not just story. It is history. We could really title this sermon, The God of History, the God of history, the God that makes history. Because you have orchestrated all the events of history and you show you're in complete control. Help us this Christmas season to know that the coming, the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this Christmas season, he's coming again. And he's going to outdo what he already did. He's going to show himself glorious and mighty his first coming was a lot of suffering. His second coming will be glory. Lord, give us hearts that worship him and worship him alone. And we pray, O oh God, that we have come away understanding better these stories that repeat themselves so that we will have confidence that you are in control and that your son is the one to be praised. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.